It was a late November night, and the rain was running down my windshield like a torrent of tears. Too many nights had passed since the last time I showed my ugly mug around here. But I knew the score. It was time to get back. Of all the podcasts in all the world, it had to be this one. It was time for a film noir special. Hello and welcome back to And Now the Movie. I'm your host, Zachary Markley. After a bit of a hiatus, I am back with a two-part special on the works categorized as film noir. In this first half of the special, I'll focus on a handful of films I consider to be some of the greatest examples of classic film noir, and in two weeks for part two, I will share a handful of the best examples of neo-noir. And... Obviously, I'll explain the difference between the two as we go along. Even though there are hundreds of movies out there that could be discussed at length today, I've combed my physical media library of over 9,000 titles to bring you 10 great examples of classic film noir and a handful of honorable mentions along the way. I'm trying out a new format with this special to hopefully keep the pace moving so we can cover a lot more information even more efficiently than before. Okay, first up, a brief history into film noir and what it's all about. What is film noir? Is it a style? A genre? A French delicacy? Well, it's at least a style and is often considered a genre in its own right. But where did it begin? What sparked the style in the first place? I have two words for you. German Expressionism. This movement was prominent in Germany before, during, and directly after World War I, reaching its peak in the 1920s and ending in the 1930s. Most of these were silent films, such as Metropolis, Nosferatu, or The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. These and many other excellent films paved the way for the American films of the 1940s and into the 1950s that are considered film noir. Now, not all films of the 40s and 50s are categorized as film noir. They have to meet a particular set of criteria. They were released around or after World War II, In fact, many German and European filmmakers that had migrated to the United States during and after World War II brought these sensibilities of German expressionism with them and directly influenced the films being made in the States at the time. Oh, and did I mention that it was French film critics that first applied the term noir to these American films? This was due to their dark nature both in composition and in content. After all, film noir means dark or black film. Okay, let's take a look at some of the trademark characteristics of film noir and what exactly it does borrow from German Expressionism. Visually speaking, both German Expressionism and film noir feature dark and oppressive lighting with high contrast. This is achieved uh, through bright, often blown out key lighting and deep, dark shadows. One extreme to the other, so to speak. In cinematic lighting, it's common to use a key light as a primary light source for your subject a backlight to separate the subject from the background, and a fill light to help reduce shadows created from these light sources and and their interactions with the subjects and environment. In film noir, we heavily reduce or just plain remove the fill light completely in an attempt to optimize the high contrast of light and shadow. Not only did this set the appropriate mood for the subject matter, but it also saved on production time. Instead of spending so much time on these complicated light setups, They kept it simple so they could focus more time on crafting great performances from their cast and so on. In addition to the contrast of light, the way light is used is also shared between both movements. Kukuloris, or cookies, are used to create hard edge lines or patterns in light to add to the mood and can be used to mimic light from elements like windows or plants outside. Um, I'm sure you've seen in movies where they have these uh, shadows up behind a character and it, it resembles horizontal blinds. Well, that was created with one of these 
cookies or kukuloras. Production design, locations, narrative structure, and mood also play roles in both film styles, but we're now going to focus solely on film noir, even if they are sh they do have shared elements, you know, to their predecessors. So sticking with the visuals, classic Hollywood films tend to balance the composition in an image, particularly between two or more subjects in a scene. With noir, this composition is often imbalanced. An example of this would be one character occupying two-thirds of the frame, being closer to the camera, and the other subject being in the final third further away. So if in a traditional film, you might have two subjects occupying more equal space in the frame. But in noir, the composition is a little bit more complex, a little bit more creative. Focal length also comes into play here, as many noirs borrow from the work of Orson Welles and cinematographer Greg Toland, and specifically their work in the motion picture Citizen Kane. Now, Citizen Kane is not technically a film noir, but it is essential to the birth and influence of the style, as several films following Kane's release would mimic the high-contrast lighting, the staging composition, and one of the most important changes to the form of film, deep focus. Modern television and movies feature a blend of focal lengths, but the one that we're likely the most accustomed to these days is called shallow focus. You've seen it plenty of times, even if you have no idea what I'm talking about. You know, when uh, you're watching a scene and usually there's a close-up on a character or you're looking over the shoulder of one character to another one who's having an emotional sequence or there's some dialogue shared between these two characters and you notice that the background is all blurred out, uh, you can, but you can still see the subjects that are in the foreground clearly. Well, that that's designed to show you exactly what is important in that sequence and where your eyes should be glued. That's an example of shallow focus. The subject's closer to the camera in focus, everything beyond that blurred or out of focus. While there are many instances of this in classic Hollywood, it wasn't until film noir and actually Citizen Kane that introduced the idea of deep focus to cinema goers. Deep focus is designed to allow more intricate composition, providing equal importance to subjects in the foreground, the midground, and even in the far distance of a shot. Film noir uses this technique regularly, as there could be figures lurking in the shadows, or maybe there's a long tunnel foreshadowing an impending demise. Speaking of cameras, the position of the camera is just as important in film noir as what lenses are used to create focal length. Everything is extreme in noir, light and shadow, the characters, and so too the camera. We have extreme low angles, extreme high angles, cameras that are tilted in, in what are known as Dutch angles. Anything to amplify a character's behaviors or feelings or whatever mood is needed for that scene. The writing is usually pretty poetic, fast-paced, and filled with cynicism. Politically driven plots find homes here along with revenge tales, vigilantism, the dark seedy underbelly of humanity. Then again, this can also describe plenty of films that are not considered noir. So, what is noir? Ask any filmmaker or expert what noir noir is, and you'll likely get many different answers. Typically, the stories are very crime-driven, but as I've described, they're more beautifully crafted than a traditional crime film. Morally ambiguous characters are found throughout with dirty detectives and femme fatales. The climate of the world after World War II was ripe for these more negative attitudes, you know, characters who lose control or run out of luck with tragic results. For me, a film noir is a dark crime film that breaks all the rules in terms of storytelling and in terms of how these films are crafted. I'll share some more details on film noir and neo-noir next time, but just know, of all the film genres and film styles, film noir is aptly the most ambiguous to define. If you want an inventive, winding story with twists and turns, non-linear narratives, sharp, witty writing, and unforgettable characters, then these are the films for you. One final note. Because of the codes in place at the time for movies, these films are filled with subtext and innuendo, um, discussing topics that are 
overtly portrayed nowadays, but the filmmakers of the time were limited by what they could show in these films. Honestly, these limitations from production codes create plenty of tension and creative opportunities to discuss the more illicit activities that were kept in the shadows. Make no mistake, plenty of these noirs were considered B-movies, second-build movies in order to fill a block of time when played in conjunction with larger budget productions. They were just like anyone else, just trying to make movies. Let's get into the films. Although there are a few exceptions of film noir and color, I'm limiting my selections today to just black and white films. Why? Black and white is also a noir staple. It's perfect for showcasing that high contrast lighting as well as help set the dark mood. So, in no particular order, here are my picks for best classic noir for this Noir-vember. The first film I've selected this month is The Big Combo from 1955. Police Lieutenant Leonard Diamond has been investigating notorious crime boss Mr. Brown for years, but has had no luck in bringing him in. This might be because he's looking in all the wrong places. And because he's in love with the mobster's lady who despises the detective. This film is one of my favorite closing shots of all time. My all-time favorite is later on this list. The use of light and shadow in this film is truly spectacular. One element that I picked up on during this rewatch that I either forgot about or didn't think anything of when I was younger, is the subplot between Mr. Brown's two hitmen, Fanti and Mingo, played by legendary actors Lee Van Cleef and Earl Holloman. I've done quite a bit of research on this, and it seems that this was an intentional coupling of two men in a working and personal partnership. Yes, this is obviously presented through subtle moments in dialogue or action, rather than anything overt, but this is pretty progressive stuff for 1955. Stars Cornell Wilde as Lieutenant Diamond and Richard Conti as Mr. Brown easily carry this picture, but the two hitmen steal the show whenever they are on screen. Also great in this one are Gene Wallace, Helene Stanton, Helen Walker, and Brian Donlevy. Don't miss the big combo. Up next is Out of the Past from 1947 starring Robert Mitchum, Jane Greer, Virginia Houston, Rhonda Fleming, and Kirk Douglas. This one comes from director Jacques Tourneur, who was mostly known for horror films at that time, but covered most genres throughout his career, and a sharp writing team in Daniel Mainwaring, James M. Kane, and Frank Fenton. If you're looking for a prime example of an American film noir, look no further. It has all the hallmarks. Flashbacks with voiceover narration, morally ambiguous characters, a winding plot filled with twists and turns, and a flawed leading character and electric femme fatale placed right in the middle. Wow, Robert Mitchum was one of a kind, wasn't he? It's easy to see why his career skyrocketed after this film. All of our principal cast are quite young here, acting their hearts out. Kirk Douglas in a smaller supporting role that fights for the camera's focus away from Mitchum every chance he can get. Jane Greer electrifies the screen in every scene in a complicated role. Put this one in your pocket. It's not to be missed. I mentioned earlier that Orson Welles' debut film, Citizen Kane, is not considered a noir, but uses many of the techniques of the style. Well, Wells did craft a couple memorable entries, including The Stranger from 1946. While the majority of Wells' film career after Citizen Kane were not what he intended to make due to studio interference and other factors, his talent in front of and behind the camera cannot be denied. This is Wells' third film, a fun little noir that follows screen legend Edward G. Robinson as he hunts a Nazi in hiding, played by Orson Welles, who has fallen in love with and married a small-town Connecticut judge's daughter, played superbly by Loretta Young. A huge highlight I enjoyed on this rewatch was simply how Wells paces and frames each of his shots. There are some masterful winners in this film that don't draw too much attention to themselves and suit the narrative quite well. 
There's also the trademark high-contrast lighting, use of mirrors. Wells was an actual magician in real life, and he brought that art to many of his films. A stellar cast headline, a classic film noir. Though not as great as Touch of Evil, another Wells noir that is often considered the final film noir that he would do a few years later, I felt that this one, The Stranger, deserved some more attention. Check it out. Here's a quick side note about how women are depicted in these films versus other films at the time. Female roles were far more three-dimensional in these film noirs than in any other genre, and are usually every bit as equal as their male co-stars. These femme fatales know exactly what they want, and most of the time they get what they want, too. Hollywood starlets were seeking these roles out because they provided a range of performances that they weren't getting with other roles. The characters are far more interesting, confident, independent, smart, and yes, sexy. In every one of these noirs, men and women truly do share the focus. Keep an eye out for how their characters are crafted while you're watching these films. And now, back to my selections. It's amazing what a full belly can do to your imagination. From 1945, it's Detour, starring Tom Neal, Anne Savage, Claudia Drake, and Edmund McDowell. This is one of filmmaker Christopher Nolan's favorite noirs, and it's easy to see why. More on Nolan's films next time. The story of Detour follows a New York piano player who hitches a ride to L.A. to marry his sweetheart. Naturally, since this is a film noir, he takes a detour into darkness. Neil and Savage give excellent performances in this one, directed by Edgar G. Ulmer, who, with the help of legendary television cinematographer Benjamin Klein, crafts some of the most iconic uses of light and shadow in all of noir. A couple of instances of light on Neil's eyes come to mind, as well as a sequence on a rainy night. Though not as popular as other hitchhiker noirs, like The Hitchhiker or Kiss Me Deadly, which features a fairly science fiction subplot involving a glowing briefcase that inspired Quentin Tarantino, Detour is absolutely worth the watch. I enjoy this one because it is more of an accidental, circumstantial murder plot that gets way out of hand and lands our stars in deeper trouble than even if the crime was premeditated. This next film is one of my all-time favorite noirs. The great Robert Ryan stars in On Dangerous Ground, from legendary directors Nicholas Ray and Ida Lupino, whose work is uncredited here. Lupino made a name for herself as a starlet in Golden Age Hollywood, but in my opinion, her prowess as a director equaled, if not surpassed, her acting, which was already pretty fantastic. Ryan stars in this one as a dirty detective on a manhunt away from the big city and into the mountains. This path leads him to Lupino, who he suspects has a connection to his fugitive. What follows is one of the greatest surprises in all of film noir. I don't want to tell you any more, but this is well written, it's expertly shot and paced, and features some genuine curveballs to make it one of the most interesting entries in this dark chapter called film noir. Also, Ward Bond delivers a solid performance here in a supporting role. After all, he was one of the great character actors of the time. Speaking of favorites, Richard Widmark is one of my favorite actors of all time, and one of the most criminally overlooked and underrated today. Widmark is known for his performances in a slew of westerns, but it was film noir where he made his debut, portraying a violent thug with a menacing laugh in Kiss of Death. He would later star in The Street with No Name, the equally excellent Night in the City, and this next film on my list, Pickup on South Street. Here, Widmark stars as a pickpocket who accidentally becomes entangled in a communist spy plot after picking the wrong pocket. Written and directed by the one and only Samuel Fuller, features Gene Peters, Thelma Ritter, Gunsmoke's Milburn Stone, and Richard Kiley in supporting roles. I love the production design in this film. 
the lighting, the performances, even the camera choices here are spot on. Plus, there's a boat and water. Who doesn't love that? I guess I'm playing favorites this whole entire episode because with this next entry, we're going to talk about quite possibly my favorite actor of all time, period. Humphrey Bogart. Though many of his films could be considered noirs, there are a select few that come to mind that are actually film noir. There's Raoul Walsh's They Drive by Night, where he joins George Raft as two truck-driving brothers who are caught up in a murder plot. In a Lonely Place is considered by many to be one of the quintessential noir films. It sees Bogey as a rough screenwriter who punches his way through his problems, including suspicion of murder. Three of the four films he did with wife Lauren Bacall could be considered film noir. Dark Passage, Key Largo, and The Big Sleep, which... That one has been long debated as it does stray from the source novel and doesn't quite check all of the film noir boxes, but to me, that is a perfect noir. All of that said, there is one clear winner for this slot. That is The Maltese Falcon. Where Bogey portrayed fictional hard-boiled detective Philip Marlowe in The Big Sleep, he plays the other famous fictional literary sleuth, Sam Spade, in The Maltese Falcon. Now, this story was adapted prior to this film, but... This one is truly the definitive adaptation. Bogey as Sam Spade is on the case of a missing statuette that leads him to a group of eccentric criminals, a gorgeous liar, and the murder of his partner. The debut film of famed director and actor John Huston, this is one of the great film noirs. Not to be missed. I would be remiss if I didn't mention director Stanley Kubrick's contribution to the oeuvre of film noir. His third feature film is the film that would finally point his career in the right direction. No offense to Fear and Desire or even Killer's Kiss. No, as strong as some portions of those first two films are, is 1956's The Killing that begins to showcase Kubrick's creativity and desire to do something in his own unique way. Kubrick started his career as a photographer, and he uses that experience to craft some memorable images and remarkable storytelling. Sterling Hayden stars as crook Johnny Clay, who assembles a five-person team to set out on a daring robbery at a racetrack. One of the elements of this film that was controversial for the producers at the time was the fact that Kubrick wanted to present this in a non-linear fashion. What that means is that the story doesn't unfold chronologically or linearly the way we perceive time in our daily life and the way that 90% of movies are done today. Kubrick wanted to purposely disorient his audience by presenting the events of his story out of order and by throwing some wrenches in the tropes and conventions of heist movies. The producers wanted Kubrick to add a voiceover narration in order to eliminate any confusion, but Kubrick resisted. Nevertheless, it is in the film and honestly could be considered a case of an unreliable narrator at times. This is a great film from one of the greatest filmmakers that ever created anything for the screen. Barbara Stanwyck is one of those starlets that was just born to star in film noir. She knew how to be vulnerable one minute and unforgiving and cruel the next. Some of her notable performances are found in The Strange Love of Martha Ivers, opposite Kirk Douglas, Clash by Night, The Two Mrs. Carrolls, another Humphrey Bogart movie, and Sorry Wrong Number. But if I didn't choose this film for this show, I'm sure the movie police would bust in and shut the whole thing down. The film is Double Indemnity, from 1944. Fred McMurray stars as an insurance representative who is seduced by Stanwyck and then later seduced into plotting with her to murder her husband. Meanwhile, insurance investigator Edward G. Robinson is growing suspicious. This is one of the all-time greats of cinema, let alone film noir, and if you ask most people, this is near or at the top of their lists for all of noir. This is due in part to the talent behind the camera as much as the talent on screen. 
Writer-director Billy Wilder, who directs one of the other all-time great noirs in Sunset Boulevard, joins forces with legendary noir author and screenwriter Raymond Chandler, who wrote The Big Sleep and Farewell My Lovely, among others. Right from the opening title sequence, you know what you're in for. The apex of noir. Last, but certainly not least, we have one of the most stylistic of all film noir. Directed by Carol Reed, it's The Third Man. An American pulp novelist, played by Joseph Cotton, travels to post-war Vienna to reunite with his friend Harry Lyme, only to find out he's died under mysterious circumstances. Alida Valley co-stars as the woman who knew Harry, Trevor Howard as the local authority Major Calloway, and the incredible Orson Welles is quite possibly the only character that can provide Joseph Cotton with the answers he seeks. I love this movie, I've seen it so many times, and I get more out of it each and every time I watch. Anton Karas composes the memorable Zither score that is quite repetitive, but it also plays into Joseph Cotton's paranoia and disorientation. Of course, we share all of those feelings with Cotton, as this is a foreign land for most Americans at the time. Now, this is the film I mentioned earlier that had my favorite final shot in all of cinema. In fact, it has many shots I would consider to be complete and utter works of art. There are a lot of those Dutch angles I mentioned at the top of the show, the angles where the camera is tilted askew. Now, supposedly... The story goes that the crew of The Third Man bought director Cale Reed a level as a gift because there were so many Dutch angles in this film. If you only watch one film of the films I've mentioned today for this entire month, please make it The Third Man. Obviously, I'd love for you to check every single one of these out, but this one is just a fantastic movie. So, what did I miss? Is Sunset Boulevard your favorite film noir? Or do you prefer the works of Fritz Lang? As much as I'd love to discuss some more of my favorite noirs like Gilda, Nightmare Alley, Criss Cross, or They Live by Night, I'm out of time for this edition. Tune in on November 21st for the second part, where I'll focus on examples of neo-noir. For more insight into classic film noir, please check out the And Now the Movie Facebook page, where I'm sharing daily movie reviews and reflections. With influences from German Expressionism, American horror from the time, crime dramas from the 1930s, the palpable post-war atmosphere that created an outlet for more adult content and conversations, film noir is one of the most fascinating cinematic styles that is still in place today, which is what I'll discuss next time on And Now the Movie. I'm Zachary Markley. Watch something great today. Next week, on November 14th, the next episode of Dreadful Science follows a man who wakes up in a mysterious house with no exits and no memory of how he got there. If he wants to see his daughter alive, the only way to escape is through paper walls. Dreadful Science is now streaming wherever you podcast. <laughs>